From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Gregory McGuire is the author of several best-selling novels, including Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, a reimagining of The Wizard of Oz told from the Wicked Witch's point of view. It was also the basis for a very popular Broadway musical, and he's out with a new novel called After Alice, which is a reimagining of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. He will be at the Thurber House in Columbus, Ohio on Thursday, October 29th. Welcome to Craft, Gregory McGuire. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're looking forward to you coming because this is a new way to look at many of our old and uh, cherished children's literature. Tell me about the the creation of this. What uh, led you to After Alice, After Oz? Well, you, you put your finger right on it at the very start, Doug, and that is in your, the use of your word cherished. These stories, both The Wizard of Oz and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, are stories that we really do cherish and we carry with us from, uh, from our childhoods into our adult lives. And really, I think most of us never relinquish them, even if we aren't always reminded that they're there with us. My intention in picking up an old story and turning it around again in my hands and saying, what can I see now that I'm grown up that I couldn't see when I was 10 or 12? My intention is to honor the original and to help point out to my readers uh, how much it still has to give us. Now, that's not my only intention. My intention also is to have fun with it. I often think of of writing as being like just a grown-up kind of play. When you were a kid, maybe you sat underneath your dining room table when you were two or three, and if you were lucky to have a couple of plastic cars and your sister's you know, naked Barbie doll, you, know, you somehow got them into some kind of a terrible event where the cars crashed into each other and the naked Barbie doll swooped down either to rescue them or to terrify them further or, or what have you. You made play with what was at hand. When I'm uh, working as an artist, as a writer, I still like to do that. I like to have fun, but I like to shed light on the materials um, that I'm having fun with. Mm -hmm. So when you started with something like After Alice, uh, what was it that attracted you to it? I know that you're talking about, you know, reimagining all these, rethinking of them from the adult point of view. Uh, Walk me through how you found the adult point of view from Alice. Well, Alice in Wonderland, I don't know if you read it, Doug, as, as a kid. I did. Uh, I, I know when I read it, I, I found it almost alone of the great fantasies that, that come to us from England. Almost alone, I found it horrifying. I found it terrifying. <laughs> I thought it was, it was like a, a child's primer in Kafka or, or in the Purgatorio. Alice descends into a madhouse, uh, from which there is no possibility of escape. It's kind of like an early draft of Hotel California. You can check in whenever you want, but you can never leave. Right. Nobody ever says to her, the Red Queen, the, the, the Cheshire Cat, the Mad Hatter, and, the, and uh, the Dormouse, nobody ever says to her, oh, by the way, if you don't like it here, if this is driving you slightly bonkers, you know, there's an elevator over there in the corner behind ladies' lingerie, and you can get out anytime you want. Nobody tells her that. And she walks from episode to episode with great uh, confidence and, and cheer because basically she's a child too young to be terrified of inconsequentiality. And I found that as a kid 
oh, you know, traumatizing. I think there's no stronger word for it. It was only when I was an adult and I got back and I thought, oh, I see. This only looks like a fantasy like Narnia or Oz where children from our world go to another real existence and return safely, sometimes with a, with a gift or a boon uh, for the rest of us. This only looks like that. It only has the same shape. This is actually a very different kind of story. This story is about the nature of dreaming as mm-hmm. well as the nature of childhood, which are almost but not quite synonymous. You know, it's, uh, you mentioned that, and I know that you have a PhD in English and American literature from Tufts, and you've done a lot with the study of children's literature. Do you think that, what, what is it that you think was really at the heart of Alice that makes it, like you said, a totally different thing from others because it's more absurd maybe is that part it, it, of it? It, it is it is more absurd it is more absurd you've you've got it exactly it, it is more absurd and and uh, the reason that it hit and that it has lasted and that it made such an impact when it did is that lewis carroll was very nearly the first creative artist not to say genius who decided to write for children and restrict himself from trying to improve them. He was simply trying to tell them what he saw, what he saw about how the world must look to them. I mean, kids, from the time they're seven and they can pay attention to what's being said, are constantly being harried and hectored and and browbeaten by adults who descend upon them with all kinds of contradictory and illogical rules, the complexities of which kids aren't able to understand. And so... And so the rubrics aren't actually given them. They just have to follow them. Alice, Fallen into Wonderland, meets a bunch of insane adults who contradict each other. And uh, it's just like the world she left behind. And that's, I think, part of why she's so calm about it. Now, at the same time as Lewis Carroll was writing in the 1860s, there had been a great tradition running in England for, oh, I'd say at least 80 years, if not more, in which... Children, yes, were being given books that were published for them, but the hope was to improve them, to save their little rotten souls and bring them to Jesus. Uh, Alice in Wonderland had no intention to rescue or save anybody, not even Alice. I think the fact that she survived was just an accident. Lewis Carroll got to the end of the amount of paper he had, and he had to go for lunch or something. So he he finished the story and brought Alice back to the riverbank. Uh, This was absolutely capsizingly new. Uh, to say to children, you are allowed to read without having to learn a blessed thing from it. You can just read and enjoy because that's part of, uh, that's part of what it means to be a child, to soak up and to enjoy. What kind of uh, literary tradition do you think that has followed in, in those footsteps then? Uh, because it looks to me like maybe we've gone the, the opposite way. I, I look at a lot of um, children's literature and I feel like it's not really instructive anymore or it doesn't have that sense of, like you're saying, um, to save their souls or something like that. You've got um, uh, things that really, you're, it's a fight between good and evil, but um, is Harry Potter supposed to be instructive? Uh, Well, I think I I think what's happened. I I think what 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 is sometimes called the didactic impulse, the impulse of of adults to 
to correct and to channel. And, and, and I don't mean to browbeat. I mean to help and to encourage and to keep alive the young people with whom they live and work. I think that impulse is still there. I just think it's going a little bit uh, more underground. Uh, it's not as obvious. I mean, there are some wonderful stories, if you can stomach them, uh, <laughs> called things like, you know, the the short life and uplifting death of, of Henry, who dies at the age of three of choking on a peach pit, but, but yields his soul to Jesus in his last dying. Uh, I mean, this was considered, this was considered fit, uh, you know, fit literature for children at the age of four and five, who desperately hoped that they too could choke on a, on a peach pit before they were five and, uh, and, and, and go to Jesus. I mean, we, we, we still have great aims and ambitions for our children. Of course we do. Of course we should. But I think uh, the writers for children, and I count myself among them, have, have become a little bit more subtle in how we uh, try to plant what we hope for our, for our kids, what we hope for readers, and what we hope for the future that we will no longer be around to, uh, to observe once, once we choke on our own peach pits. <laughs> You're really painting a, a warm and inviting picture. Uh, I haven't that, had enough coffee. <laughs> right, yeah. Tell me about that. That You, you said that uh, you, you want to be more subtle about it. Tell me about some of the subtlety that you could point to in After Alice or in Wicked and say, this is supposed to be, this is something that I want them to learn, but I don't want to do it directly. Well, um, the diff- one difference for me is that both Wicked and After Alice uh, are published for adults. So even okay. though they are based on children's stories, it is assumed that by, you know, Wicked is almost 500 pages, and After Alice is, is less than half that length, but still written uh, with an adult complexity of language and a right. knowingness of tone, I think. Uh, so what I, what I hope to do, nonetheless, is to suggest in both those stories, but maybe more in After Alice, that children find themselves, even in their imaginative play, they find themselves in a world where a lot of the rules are hidden from them, and they will make mistakes because um, that's the only way to learn. The only way you learn is make mistakes. Now, in After Alice, there are two plot lines going on. One is that Ada, Alice's best friend, has been walking along the riverbank on her way to see Alice, and she too falls down the rabbit hole, only she arrives in Wonderland a few minutes after Alice. She spends the book increasingly anxious that Alice is not going to realize in what danger she is, and Ada thinks, I better, I better catch up with her if I possibly can and save her. Meanwhile, up on the riverbank, the older sister of Alice, who was reading to her and who nodded off, uh, wakes up, and realizes that her baby sister is missing. And uh, so, so the, the corollary story in After Alice is Lydia going home and having to admit to Alice's family and to her family that she's lost her baby sister and she can't be found. And so the above ground, the Oxford 1865 story, or 1862, I guess it is, uh, is a story of child endangerment and the, and the Wonderland story is another story of child endangerment, uh, but told in a different key. So they are parallel stories running on twin rails toward the great question, can children save themselves and can they be saved? Mm-hmm. I'd like to end with one question about 
like all the things that you've been discussing about how you're reimagining these and, and you've got these, you know, you're paralleling in some aspects, Alice, and then bringing in these new uh, threads and these new ideas. What kind of reaction uh, has surprised you uh, with people who've read the books and come back to you? Because they've been really well received, but I imagine there has to be you have to have some people who say things that surprise you about, you know, messing with a classic is my guess. Uh, oh, absolutely. Well, uh, so far after Alice, is, it's still a, a couple of weeks before uh, publication day, so I'm still able uh, to go outside without a bodyguard and, and you know, my, my, my own personal Pope mobile. Uh, but uh, once it's published, <laughs> I do expect that I'm going to hear some vitriol from people saying, how dare you... Uh, how dare you play with the classic again? You did it for The Wizard of Oz, and some of the people 20 years ago when Wicked first came out, you know, called me a heretic in print and, and called for my tarring and feathering and, and running out of the country. Uh, in, Af- in Alice in Wonderland, uh, I mean, Alice is actually a much more impressive and more important book, and so I could see some people even being more agitated that I should dare to have the hubris uh, the moxie, the, the the cojones to deal with a great classic of literature. But I remind myself and I remind them that Shakespeare ripped through Plutarch to find his plots, to make something out of them. And Marcel Duchamp, one of the founders of Dadaism, took a postcard of the Mona Lisa and drew the famous mustache upon it and put it in an art gallery and said, this is art too. In other words that there's no amount of mustaches drawn upon the Mona Lisa that can ever detract from the magnificent achievement and the impact of da Vinci's immortal painting. In that way, there's no amount of playing around that I, as an early 21st century writer, can do with the Greek classic that can possibly abuse it. The classic is eternal. I am ephemeral. I know it. I'm just having fun. And if you like to have fun, come along with me. Well, that sounds great, and we look forward to you being in Columbus on Thursday, October 29th, to bring that fun and to bring Alice and Ada and the other characters to life at the Thurber House. Thank you so much, Doug. I hope to see you there, and I'm really looking forward to coming. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.